0: What's going on, you guys? My name is Brian Silverman. This is the Brian at the Disco Podcast, the first in like a, a month. How's it going? Uh, the first thing I want to I want to get right into it is that I just saw, I believe his name is David Cho, uh, was the main actor in a movie that I just saw, which I think has kind of flown under the radar for how good it was. Uh, it was a film called Searching. And of course, I use MoviePass, so I, I t- typically just see the movies that are on there. And MoviePass has been so wonky these last couple months, that they only really allow you to see older movies or movies that aren't overselling, aren't as expensive. So MoviePass had available this movie that I had never heard of, Searching. And when I went to go see it, I didn't really know what I was in for. I knew it was a, a movie about a father who had whose daughter had gone missing and kind of went into her laptop and discovered some parts of her life that he wasn't aware of in order to try to find out where she had gone. But I wasn't really prepared for the style of the movie. It was very much like a Blair Witch Project kind of thing where they forced you into this uh, unusual perspective. The perspective of the movie, not to give away too much of the style or the plot itself, because it is a movie that takes a lot of turns, the style of the movie was that it showed everything through the vantage point of a laptop. That you'd see the laptop screen, so when you'd want to see the dad interacting with somebody, you see like FaceTime, you'd see the camera from the laptop looking out at him. I imagine it didn't take a lot to make and it was really, really well done because the laptop was so involved with so much of the investigation that it never felt like it was really a leap to record it on a laptop. But that's not what I came to tell you about. I'm like Arlo Guthrie. It's not what I came to tell you about. After a ten minute song, I'm gonna continue the rest of Addis's Restaurant Massacre. What I saw before the movie actually started was a lot of previews. Uh, the New York Times recently put out props to the New York Times. They recently put out all the upcoming films for the winter season, of course. If you follow award shows, you know that most of the what you'd consider the best movies, uh, you know, some movies come out over the summer, the big blockbusters, the high concept movies. But most of the movies that people really want to see come out around Christmas time because that's right before the Academy Awards. The Academy Awards are always in January or February, which is the beginning of the next year. So the later you put it out, the more... In the mind of the voters, your movie gets to be. For example, if you put out Forrest Gump in the summertime, people might have forgotten about it and not voted for it for Best Picture, even though it's the worst Best Picture, in my opinion, ever made. But again, that's not what I came to tell you about because there's been a lot of good movies that are going to come out, such as First Man with the uh, Damien Chazelle movie, uh, where Ryan Gosling plays Neil Armstrong on his kind of mission to be the first man on the moon. Looks excellent couple other movies, documentaries about the Holocaust are coming out because uh, the the generation of people who survived the Holocaust, of course, are dying. So those stories need to be told. There's a great uh, movie that I, I'm forgetting the name of off the top of my head about a kid who uh, meets a Nigerian prince. There's a lot of good stuff coming out uh, later this season. Um, there's the one with Steve Carell, where he's a, a vet, a I think he's an artist who gets injured and forgets a lot of stuff and can't work with his hands anymore, so he works with dolls. A lot of interesting stuff coming out this season is where I'm, uh, If Beale Street Could Talk, the new FSU alum Barry Jenkins' movie who previously had made Moonlight, a lot of good stuff coming out. But the thing that really dominated my attention during these previews was how many of them were freaking remakes. You know, we, we I saw a trailer for both Dumbo and Mary Poppins, two classic Disney tales that they want to retell again and again. These movies are starting to be like James Bond, that they just want different actors to play it over time and for it to just go on forever and ever and ever and milk all the money out of it that they possibly can. Uh, Just to give you a couple examples of movies that have been remade off classics, you know, Mary Poppins, Dumbo, Spider-Man, Star is Born, the new one where Bradley Cooper is directing and Lady Gaga plays the Barbara Streisand part. Uh, Ben-Hur, Psycho, oh my god, remember, remember the 1998 Psycho, and if you don't, I'm going to tell you about it, because it's a shot-for-shot remake of the classic, and rather than, uh, you know, the classic cast, it, <laughs> you know who it stars as Norman Bates? Vince Vaughn. Yeah, it's as bad as you think it is. If, if not, go look up a couple scenes from it, it is one of the worst remakes ever made. You know, there's also Total Recall, and this year, Benedict Cumberbatch is doing another How the Grinch Stole Christmas, which is what, the fourth or fifth iteration after the cartoon? Uh, True Grit, which was actually a good example of a remake with the Coen brothers, remaking the John Wayne movie, the... Fill your hands, you son of a bitch. It's my John Wayne, in case I have to explain that. Uh, I call that bold dog from a one-eyed fat man. Uh... And then, of course, there's even Halloween movies are getting remade. Halloween and the thing. Uh, There's just so many movies that are coming right back into circulation. And my point about remakes has always been this. And this is coming from a very icy film. I've always held film to a very high standard. I'm sorry that I'm getting into this very serious subject early on. I promise there's a lot of dick jokes right around the corner. But what I've always seen with film is that film is kind of like the Bible was... For the medieval ages. In the medieval ages, people had the commonality of knowing these stories in the Bible, whereas uh, the the scripture I think of today, the commonality of stories, is not so much in novels because people don't read as much. It's more in film. You know, the, the commonality of language through film, of film references, of uh, stories gleaned from film. It is our Bible in a certain way. It is our canon of society. So coming from that perspective, I see that remakes I don't think remakes should be remade off of classic films. I don't think they should remake movies like Jaws or First Encoun- or Close Encounters. I don't think they should remake Total Recall, which is a classic Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. I don't think they should remake Mary Poppins or Dumbo, which have great uh, versions already. Mary Poppins has Dick Van Dyke in it, and Dumbo is this classic cartoon. I think what they should remake, and this is coming, of course, from a perspective of I see it as art, not as a, as a business, I think the film industry should remake movies that had strong concepts but were not executed correctly. Let me give you an example of that. The film Pandorum, the Dennis Quaid, uh, Ben Forrester, I believe is the actor. Uh, Ben Forrester was in, of course, Mad Men, and uh, he was the crazy brother in Hell or High Water, if you recently saw that. But Dennis Quaid and Ben, either Foster or Forrester, now I'm choking on his name, but the Dennis Quaid movie Pandorum Uh, followed these guys who wake up on a ship and they've lost their memory and they're getting attacked by these crazy monsters and the whole concept of the movie is that this ship was like an ark was when earth was dying they sent this ship off and it's been gone for so long that these creatures that have woken up have actually kind of evolved into these crazy monsters it's a very interesting concept it wasn't exactly perfectly done just to give you an example of how well thought out this movie was but how poorly executed it was when they looked outside the ship it was totally black there was no stars and the big twist which came very poorly was that in fact the ship was not in space but it had had uh, crash landed into an ocean and was at the bottom of the ocean I thought that was kind of an interesting thing but the way they executed the punchline was just so poorly done now I would go I would really like to see a remake of something like Pandorum because it has that strong concept and it could have been a great movie But it just wasn't. Why remake these movies that are already great and that you'll never live up to? The new Psycho was never going to be as good as the Alfred Hitchcock movie, and they knew that going in. They weren't trying to make a better version. They were just trying to cash in on people's nostalgia for these old movies. Now how did this start? How did we get to this place where the concept of a movie is so much more important than the actual execution? That we'll, we'll remake Total Recall, and even though it's a garbage piece of shit movie, We'll we'll put it out there because people have nostalgia for Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's because of the shift that happened after Heaven's Gate. Uh, and I've talked about this before, where in the 60s there was this real movement of where television was kind of beginning to eclipse films. And what happened was the film executives and the, the money men behind it were so desperate to bring people back into the theater that they relinquished a lot of control to the actual artists. That's how you get the rise of things like Jaws from Spielberg or Star Wars from a relatively unknown filmmaker like George Lucas, that you give them the, the breathing room to find their style, to create an entire work. The, and some of those are, that is an era that I consider really a renaissance of movies because it, it was just so arti- artistically driven. And, of course, the early Chiminos before Heaven's Gate were like that, where you get Thunderbolt and Lightfoot... And uh, The Deer Hunter. Those are movies that could not be made today because you tell them, you know, I want to make a Vietnam movie uh, and then show very little Vietnam and portray Asians in this one-dimensional way and then do Russian roulette, which never happened. They'd be like, oh, but that never happened. How are we going to sell that to people? The concept isn't strong enough. The concept is not the movie. Let's be clear here that the concept now has to be stronger than the movie. For example, they'll keep making all these Marvel movies because people will show up to them. Not because they're going to be good movies, but because they just want to rate people for all the money that they can to get them into the movies. I've always compared this era of uh, artistically driven movies where the executives felt that they were backed against the wall and that they relinquished a lot of control. I, w- I like to compare that to what happened to AMC. Um, If you're not familiar with what happened to AMC, they kind of pioneered this idea of lost leaders. When a lot of the basic cable stations were getting moved over and people had to pay for them, AMC was in real trouble because before that, they weren't really advertiser-driven and they just kind of showed good movies. So they kind of realized they had to get into original programming. And they they had this idea to do television in what's called Lost Leaders, where the the... Creation of the show is always going to be more expensive and cost more money than it's going to make back. But if the television is good enough, people will attach onto that brand and demand it and not let it die. When AMC did this, they started creating shows such as Breaking Bad, Mad Men, uh, The Walking Dead. They really it, it it created AMC as this staple for television that it is now. When you start trying to create good stuff. Rather than stuff that will just sell, the money comes. It doesn't come on the upfront, but the money always comes. And uh, even though I love the film *Heaven's Gate*, it's kind of known as a turning point away from the film era, the Renaissance that I was talking about, where the directors had all the control. And here I'm going to read this is in the uh, the Wikipedia for *Heaven's Gate*. And just to be clear, *Heaven's Gate* was one of the considered one of the biggest box office flops of all time, but it has gotten a major cult following because people have kind of revisited it and realize that it's this great movie, despite the fact that people panned it so much that the artist behind it, Chimino, who's the writer-director who really pushed it and made the budget really over the top and eventually bankrupted United Artists, it turned Chimino away from making films. He never made another whole film again. And I think that's a shame. But anyway, to the Wikipedia of Heaven's Gate, this is about the film. There were major setbacks in the film's production due to cost and time overruns. Negative press, including allegations of animal abuse on set, And rumors about Chimino's alleged authoritarian directing style, which is how Kubrick did it too. God forbid someone wants creative control. The film resultantly opened on scathing reviews, earning only $3.5 million domestically from an estimated $44 million budget. Eventually causing its parent company, United Artists, which put out so many great movies even dating back to uh, its creation by uh, Charlie Chaplin, United Artists, to collapse and effectively destroying the reputation of Chimino, a previously rising Hollywood auteur from the success of his 1978 film The Deer Hunter, winner of the Academy Awards for Best Picture and Best Director in 79. Chimino had an an expensive and ambitious vision, pushing it nearly four times over its planned budget. Its resulting financial problems and United Artists' consequent demise led to a move away, and this is right what I'm talking about, led to a move away from the brief 1970s period of director driven film production in the American film industry back toward the greater studio control of films, as has been predominant in Hollywood until the late 1960s. It's a real shame because I felt like when you watch Heaven's Gate, it's so overrun with people, there's so many extras, it's such a holistic vision of a film that is also very much tied into its time. Uh, it's it's Chimino at his best, if you ask me. It really is a movie I've watched a lot of times, and every time I watch it, I get a little something out of it, whether it's, um, oh, what's his name, is it? Ed Hurt, oh John Hurt. I always think call him Ed Hurt, sorry, John Hurt. Of course, the guy who's, the alien came out of an alien. He was so incredible, uh, with Chris Christopherson and uh, Isabel Hubert in this, Heaven's Gate's one of my favorite movies. Uh, That being said, it was kind of the crest of this great wave of Hollywood that had happened before it. And they call this the New Hollywood Move, or the New Hollywood. Uh, And this is from the Wikipedia for New Hollywood, That I'm going to wrap up this discussion on remakes, I promise. I promise we're going to get to something funny real soon. Uh, This is from the Wikipedia for New Hollywood. After the demise of the studio system and the rise of television, the commercial success of films was diminished. The, quote, New Hollywood period spanning from the late 1960s and early 1980s was a brief period of revival. Films of the early New Hollywood era include, and this is there are a lot of good classic films: Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, Night of the Living Dead, The Wild Bunch, and Easy Rider. While films including Heaven's Gate and One from the Heart marked the end of an era, and this is in parentheses, and this is my point: despite the two maintaining a cult following years later, so these are not bad movies, but they were movies that poorly were poorly received, and that's all it took. People were these money men were so ready to take back control that it really has kind of caused the walmart of movie making where people just show up to these marvel movies knowing they're not going to be great films but they're good enough that i'll spend my money and it's escapism it's not art imitating life it's not art teaching a lesson the two things i always want from a film that can really make a film great to me is one if it surprises me and two if it makes me think my favorite movies like butch cassidy and social network do both of those things but I digress. I want to talk about Tracy Morgan. <laughs> what a segue! I want to talk about Tracy Morgan because football season is coming up, and every time I see the football coaches screaming on the sideline and losing their heads, I always think of this really uh, obscure interview with Tracy Morgan that's on YouTube. So we're gonna listen into that.
1: I remember you came into the, you used to come into the Uptown, and cats used to be tense, and you used to do some of the silliest shit. And you used to tell cats join in, join in. Break up the tension. No, you Stand said up. no. You used to say uh, chemistry. Like you used, to, you used to want blend. If you see me doing this, play the air guitar. Blend, to blend, blend in with it. Go in your mind in detail. Flow with it. Learn how to do the study. Do your homework. I- All
0: right. So just to be clear, what this guy is telling Tracy is Tracy used to tell people. For young comics, go watch older comics. And Tracy Morgan is kind of getting excited by his old ideas like, yeah, how you going to be great if you don't study greatness? And this guy gently throws him the concept of, look at the game tape. And he takes that and, like, truly great improv, it is not set up beforehand, it is not totally thought out. He comes up with on the spot this incredible <laughs> high school football coach character. Okay, sorry, I won't... Pause it every couple seconds. Let's get right back into it.
1: I just always tell y'all, do your homework, get footage. How the oh. fuck you gonna know how to be great if you don't study greatness? Flow with it. got look at game tape. Look at the game tape. <laughs> Hit somebody, God damn it I don't give a fuck if it's your own teammate. Lay some pads on somebody. I swear to God, but now if you start that dumb fluty shit. you ain't dog fruity
0: can i just say how perfect a name for a junior high school football kid daryl bernelli is what dude what a g i'm sorry oh no more interruptions i'll let it roll
1: you ain't dog fruity <laughs> you ain't dog fruity <laughs> stop that Doug fruity the darn hair uh, of daryl bernelli just call the goddamn plate and get in the huddle Crazy. Okay, <laughs> the who is Doug Flutie shit? Stop, stop the, the oh. 2 back to the goddamn 3 hole. That's uh, all wait. I said, and I said cold timeout. Yard tackle, square block. And That's and all it. I said! <laughs> stop the Doug Flutie shit. Cut the Doug Flutie <laughs> shit out, okay? It's not Doug Flutie. We might have won the game if it wasn't for Doug Flutie. Yo, this If man, it wasn't for goddamn Doug, Doug Flutie. Hey, yo, listen, listen.
0: Damn Doug Flutie. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, the, every time I hear like Jimbo or any of the coaches, you freaking out on the sideline. All I think is about, about is put some pads on somebody. I don't care if it's your own teammate. <laughs> oh my god, Tracy Morgan is underrated, man. That's one of my favorite clips. But I wanted to share that. And uh, before I get into the last part of this podcast, I also just want to share a couple things that I added to the uh, the soundboard. Put a couple things from uh, the inimitable Frank Vincent. If you've never seen Goodfellas, you gotta watch it, because the best scene in that film has uh, Frank Vincent with the uh, the classic, now go home and get your shine box to Joe Pesci, which ends up getting him killed, actually. But uh, the first two I got here are from The Sopranos, because Frank Vincent was also in The Sopranos. So uh, here's the first one of those. <laughs> Hold on, let me put my earbuds back in.
2: You fucking kidding me? You don't ever admit the existence of this thing. Ever.
0: That's uh, Frank Vincent talking about uh, when somebody says, hey, it could have been worse. He could have flipped. And he, in old school mafiosa terms, you never talk about this. Never admit the existence of this thing. One more time.
2: You fucking kidding me? You don't ever admit the existence of this thing. Ever.
0: Uh, the second clip is when Tony apologizes for the death of Frank Vincent's brother in the show, even though Frank Vincent kind of knows that Tony was involved with it. So here, here's Frank Vincent's reaction to getting told he's sorry.
3: Take your fucking sorries and stick them in your ass.
0: <laughs> Everything. He's like Arlie Ermi. Everything he says could be its own soundbite. This is tough for me to even cut down this few. Um, and the rest of these are all from the same scene. He was only in one scene good Goodfellas, and he was the most iconic part, in my opinion. Now, of course, the most iconic line that he had, which people will remember much more than anything else, was, of course, this line
1: I'll go home and get your fucking shine
0: box. Which is iconic. All right, make no mistake. But the rest of them, when he's trying to like calm them down, and oh my god, everything else he says in the scene, I find even more iconic than that. So let's listen to uh, a couple of them. Uh, I'll try to get them in order. Hold on. Uh, here's the first one. When he uh, he is reacting, oh, why would Joe Pesci throw on me like that?
2: No, I mean, the kiss over
0: out, here, I uh, was well, hugging and kissing yeah. over here, and two minutes later, he's acting like a fucking jerk. That fucking jerk. <laughs> uh, uh, what else? He uh, right around that same time, he was appealing to a uh, Jimmy Conway, played by De Niro, and Henry Hill, played by uh, Ray Liotta, to kind of reel their friend. Yeah, let's listen to this.
1: He's Not just a little fucking manners.
0: <laughs> little manners. <laughs> Alright, uh. And then here's another one of him trying to uh to, to reel in Jimmy Conway and Henry Hill.
2: Hey Jimmy, what's right is right. You understand what I'm talking
0: about? <laughs> you understand what I'm talking about? <laughs> Everything he says is so iconic. This was tough for me to only pick a couple of these. And then uh Last one at the very end of the scene when uh, everything's kind of died down and he's turning back to his own friend. He's just kind of talking to himself, so I'm gonna stay quiet through this one.
2: Fucking so break up my potty.
0: <laughs> break up my potty. <laughs> <laughs> I also have two more uh, new sound clips, and these are not from Frank Vincent, even though all those are so good. It's so good. Um, the, the others two are from the inimitable Room, which James Franco made a movie about called The Disaster Artist. So last two here um this is kind of the the uh, the overall message of the movie
1: if a lot of people love each other the world would be a better place to live
0: a better place to live <laughs> i'm from new orleans the big easy <laughs> uh and then last one right here this is my favorite by the way of uh, the room sound bites that i got
3: you betray me, you're not good, you're just a chicken. Chip, 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 chip,
0: chip. <laughs> chip, chip, chip. <laughs> Alright, and uh, getting into the last part of this, I do want to address, because I'm very into tennis, if you listen to this podcast, I talk about it a lot. The last part that I wanted to talk about is the women's US Open final. Because I went to the earlier rounds of the US Open, I got to see Naomi Osaka, who's one of my favorite female players, because she... Really is an American. Um, she, her ethnicity is Haitian. She is, her father was Haitian and her mother is Japanese. So she plays under the Japanese flag because I guess she's still a citizen there. Um, but she really is quite American. And what I really love about her the most is even though she's the super talented, gritty tennis player, she's very not media trained. She's not polished <laughs> when it comes to the interviews afterwards. And I'm going to try to go through this one step at a time because she played Serena in the final. But she did not have an easy road to get there, despite her being uh, from South Florida. And this is her interview after the semi-final, kind of setting up uh, what happens in the final. This is her after defeating Madison Keys, uh, saying how she played so hard, what she was thinking.
2: 13 break points faced, 13 saved. How did you do that?
3: Um. This is going to sound really bad, but I was just thinking I really want to play Serena.
0: (laughs) Crowd loves it, of course. And let me say this, as we get into the other clips, the people in the crowd, because this was a very controversial final if you haven't heard about it, the people in the crowd get it so wrong on what is going on, they are so reactionary. But then again, they don't have the mics there. They're not seeing what we see on TV, so you have to give them a break. But God, even when I was up there in New York with my family watching uh, these matches, the crowds in New York are just so terrible. So many casual tennis fans who like applaud after double faults and just make noise in the middle of points. It's like you're really not supposed to do that in tennis. But uh, So to set up what's going on, Osaka won the first set. And was pretty handily beating Serena. The women played two out of three sets. And the umpire, Carlos Ramos... In tennis, it's not like in in football or basketball or anything else. Once you're on the court, you're not supposed to talk to your coach. You're not supposed to receive any messages from your coach. You're not supposed to be coached. And what happened here was there's a dedicated camera for each coach. There's a camera on Sasha, who is Naomi Osaka's coach... And there's a camera on Patrick Montaglu, who is Serena Williams' coach. So the people in the production truck, just to set this up where all this came from, and I want to unwind it kind of as it happened and not give my views on it too early on, but what happened here is the umpire calls, gives... Okay, to set this up even further back, in tennis, there's a three-strike violation. For your first violation, like if you smash your racket or something, or yell at the ref, or get coaching, that's your first strike. You get a warning. Okay? Nothing bad happens. You don't get any points taken away. Nothing like that. However, the second time you do it, you lose a game. So they, or no, rather you lose a point. First one's warning, second one you lose a point, so you forfeit a point to your opponent. And then the third time it happens. So after the warning, after the point is given, if you make a third violation, like smashing your racket or something, they give a game to your opponent. So those are the rules. Just taking a sip of water before we get into this, because this is controversial, and uh, I do have opinions on it. Uh, So let's get into it. So this first clip is right after Serena gets a warning for coaching. She walks up to the uh, umpire and talks to him.
2: Carlos Ramos in the chair.
3: If he gives me a thumbs up, he's telling me to come on. We don't have any code, and I know you don't know that, and I understand why you may have thought I, that was coaching, but I'm telling you it's not. I don't cheat to win. I'd rather lose. I'm just letting you know.
2: It was a coaching violation. I guess it was a thumbs Proud up. I'm I mean, setting him straight. That, that is not coaching. I don't cheat
0: to win. I'd rather lose. So this is going to come up a lot later on. Again, let me just say, this was not the umpire's call that this coach was cheating. The people in the production truck who are running the camera saw Serena's coach giving the signals, sent the video to the umpire. The umpire watched it, decided it was coaching. Now because this is a visual thing where they show the coach, let me just be clear about what happened. So imagine you're holding your hands out in kind of a circle where your palms are facing toward you and your hands are open, kind of like you're holding it in a circle, like you're gonna be carrying something big. So imagine now his hands are a little bit further apart, so his hands are straight out with his palms pointed inward at each other like his fingers are going to touch, and he brings his hand from further out to closer in. Further out to closer in. If you were watching the style of play, what happens after the alleged coaching violation is that Serena starts bringing Naomi Osaka to the net. So it looks like he was telling Serena, come to the net. Serena's later going to say, I wasn't receiving coaching, all this stuff. So I'm clearing up the controversy right now. If you watch the style of play, the way he was accused of coaching, she adjusted her game to that. So this is between games after the first violation. This is Serena, I believe, talking to the umpire some more. So it's still relatively civil at this point. She says, I don't cheat. Um, I can't think of her ever being accused of that. She has some very famous meltdowns at the U.S. Open before. Most famously a couple years ago when she got called for a foot fault, which is where you put your foot in front of the line before you serve. And uh, she threatened the linesman who called it. She said, I'm going to shove this fucking ball down your fucking throat. So Serena has some very famous meltdowns here and before. But I cannot recall any instance of her being accused of cheating. And to be clear, she wasn't accused of cheating here. She was called for coaching. Uh, Is that cheating? That's kind of what she gleamed from it. But it's very civil at this point. The guy said, I know you're not cheating. He never said, I know you're not being coached, which is an important distinction. And also a distinction is once you give one of these violations, such as a warning for coaching, which is given here, that stuff doesn't get undone because the player said it didn't happen. What happened now is later in the second set, uh, Serena gets broken, and if you don't know what tennis is, usually you hold serve. When you serve the ball, it's assumed that you're gonna win the game. When you don't win the game, it's called a break because that's a break in the um, pace of the play where the other person gets up a break. So this is after Serena gets broken and then she smashes her racket.
2: Yeah, Serena they a new frame. Smash that one. Back on serve. Williams leads three games to two. Second set, Osaka by one centimeter. Code violation, racket abuse, point penalty, Mrs. Williams.
0: So there you heard the umpire say racket abuse, code violation. Point penalty, which means the point was given to Osaka. And now I believe the next clip that I have here is after the point penalty, a little bit of confusion, and Serena begins having words with the umpire.
2: And now Serena's confused by the score being called out. This is unbelievable. Every time I
3: right play here, I'm talking what? Yeah, that's a warning. I didn't get coaching! I didn't get coaching! I didn't get coaching. You need to take. You need to make an announcement that I didn't get coaching. I don't cheat. I didn't get coaching. How can you say that? You need to. You need to, You owe me an apology. You owe me an apology. I have never cheated in my life. I have a daughter and I stand what's right for her. And I've oh. never cheated. And you owe me an
0: apology. Oh okay. <laughs> Why does she have to bring it to that place where she brings up her daughter and... Oh, my God. The guy never said she cheated. He warned her for coaching, which she was getting. Um, And she just starts yelling. And look, these casual crowds that are at the U.S. Open, most of these are business people or, you know, friends who are casually interested in tennis. They don't understand why Serena's getting a point taken away from her. Serena's very popular in the United States. Because all these nationalistic morons who go to the U.S. Open, who casually watch tennis, see an American flag next to Serena and see a Japanese flag next to Osaka. And despite the fact that they're both American, they all root for Serena. So the crowd gets it completely wrong here. <coughs> Needless to say, as Serena is going after the, uh, the umpire here for pretty much just doing his job... And uh, this part is where she just really starts laying into him more. And she can tell that the crowd is behind her. Serena can tell the crowd is on her side. So that kind of emboldens her a little bit to really ask for an apology from the umpire.
2: (laughs) Naomi Osaka Osaka breaks in front, second set.
0: So we got the game.
3: You attacking my character. Yes, you are. You owe me an apology. You will never, ever, ever be on another court of mine as long as you live.
0: Okay. Right there, I think, is one of the parts that's getting overlooked where she says you will never, ever be on a court of mine again. Whew, it got it got ugly, ugly out there. And I've, I've gone through this a couple times, and I don't think the umpire is out of line. There's some other issues that are getting attached to this. I'll go through those later. Let me finish the clip.
3: You are the liar.
0: So down. Then are you gonna give me my apology? think she does right my You owe
3: me an apology. Say it. Say you're sorry. Well then you're then don't talk to me. Don't talk to me.
0: Oh. Serena. And she was on every commercial and people were loving her because she's a new mother. Ugh. All right. And this is where it really goes off the rails. <laughs> so, so, again, so far there have been two penalties. First was first was for coaching. Second one was for racket abuse. Here we're going to have the third uh, uh, code violation where Serena, once you start calling the umpire names... They are supposed to call it for verbal abuse. So you're going to see her hear her uh, go after the umpire a little bit here. And not like what he says. How dare you insinuate
2: that I was cheating. Serena Williams still fuming Carlos Ramos. She was demanding an apology from him for the insinuation that she had cheated, that there was coaching going on. Again, and any player the
0: announcers don't know what to do. Bear
2: the blame when it's a person, the person's right. player box who is actually accused of, of something. Yeah,
3: it, Serena right was watching her coach give her a hand. Signal. Verbal abuse.
2: And Game now penalty, Mrs. Williams. Wow.
0: Verbal Game. abuse. Penalty he called it verbal abuse for calling him a thief. So this is her laughing after that. And they, they go to kind of set up the next game. But since the game penalty had just happened, which very rarely happens at this level, because once usually players get warned, they don't continue to have problems like this. So what happens here is now Serena laughs, kind of is in disbelief. Osaka is, of course, shell-shocked. She has no idea what to do here. Uh, and Serena decides she wants to go over the umpire's head, so she goes and tries to talk to the referees.
2: was asking for the referee Osaka was ready to serve at 4-3 it was hard to hear over the crowd but Carlos Ramos said game penalty we said that the third code violation would lead to that correct and now Brian Early in his 39th year of working with the US Open his last year as a referee is involved in something incredibly ugly
0: (sighs) I forgot how intense this is all right this is the last part and uh, you can kind of realize where this happens when the male and the female ref come out together and the referees go talk to the umpire, clear up with him, okay, what what happened? What did she call you? And he, the umpire tells them, she called me a thief. And they immediately accept it. They're like, oh, okay, where are we at then? They had no question about it. No, they understand once you get into the name calling, it's verbal abuse to the umpire. So, and this is where uh, a lot of the discussion is kind of branched off of this part. And so this is the second to last clip, but it's probably the most important. So uh, let's listen in.
3: It's a little bit tough to hear. (laughs) And
2: that's not right.
3: This is not this has happened to me too many times. This is not fair. This is not fair. But to give me a point to lose a game for what we're saying—that is not fair. I mean, it's really not. I, but the, you know how many other men? You know how many other men do things that are—I I don't, I don't think they do much worse than that. This is not fair. There's a lot of men out here said a lot of things, and because they are bad, that doesn't happen to them. Okay? There is no this is This is unbelievable. No, I don't know the risk, because if I say a simple thing, a thief doesn't stole a point from me, that does not make... The, there are men out here that do live parts because I'm a woman. Because I'm a woman, you're going to take this away from me? That is not right. You know, and you know it, and I know you can't admit it, but I know you know it's not right. I know you can't change it, but I'm just saying that's not right. I get the rules. I get I, just, I get the rules, but I'm just saying it's not right. And to happen to me at this tournament every single year that I play, it's just not fair. That's all I have to say. It's not fair. And
0: To be clear, the part that has gotten the most conversation after this is the quote where Serena says, it's because I'm a woman, you're going to try to take this away from me. And this is a tough one, because uh, before that she had said, do you know how many men have done things worse? Now, I want to address these one at a time, because of course there is sexism in tennis, and a double standard. And Serena has unfortunately had to go through a lot of abuse herself, not only for her racial background but because she is a woman. Um, Earlier this year, she wore the skin-tight leopard uh, like catwoman, as it was called, suit at the French Open because it helped uh, circulation in her body, so it's actually like a medical thing. And the French Open banned her to continue wearing that. So that's sexist. So we're going to start there. And then just focusing in a little bit at the U.S. Open, uh, the double standard. This women's match got millions and millions more views than the men's. Yet, when you look at the men's trophy versus the women's trophy, the women's trophy is substantially smaller, both the runner-up and first-place trophy. Now, uh, also at the U.S. Open, Elise Cornette, who's a French player, came out of the locker room between sets, and she had accidentally put her shirt on backwards. So she, real quickly, just took her shirt off, spun it around, put her shirt back on, and got called for a code violation for that. Now, should she have been called for a code violation for that? I don't think so. Uh, She was just changing her outfit. She wasn't doing anything uh, offensive or out of the spirit of play. Now, Novak Djokovic, who won the U.S. Open this year, I believe it was either in the semis or the quarterfinals, it was so hot, he decides to just take his shirt off and lounge with his hands behind his head in kind of a relaxed pose for minutes and minutes and was never called for code violation. So this is not my point. My point of view is not that sexism does not exist in tennis. It absolutely does. Unfortunately, a lot of the conversation has been, there's so much sexism in tennis like in this scenario. This scenario that we're walking through with Serena, I don't believe is an example of sexism. It is an example of a player having a complete meltdown on the court and kind of lashing out however they can at the umpire. Uh, As far as her charge that men don't get treated the same as far as code violations, I addressed the one with uh, taking the shirt off, and I think that's blatant sexism. However, as far as abusing the umpires, uh, Novak Djokovic uh, said fuck you to an umpire this year and was given a warning, so he got exactly the same treatment as Serena on that front. And Fabio Fognini last year at the U.S. Open called an umpire a whore, a female umpire. And Fabio Fognini was not only removed from singles at the U.S. Open, but he was also kicked out of doubles. So while men do say some worse things, they get either as bad or worse violations for it. Uh, another example of this is that actually today the news came out that the umpire... Okay, just to give you a background, this year, Nick Kyrgios, who's a kind of controversial Australian player, who's uh, he seemed to just not care as he was playing a French player named Pierre-Hubert Herbert. Uh, we were watching this match, and again, it, it looked like Kyrgios was intentionally double-faulting unhappy so we left the match at that point but the most controversial part came when the umpire told him i want to help you you are great for tennis i know this is not you Uh, after that curio started playing better and eventually won the match however that umpire has been suspended for two tournaments for trying to dictate the style of play so the umpires can be uh, punished for doing the wrong call and men are punished for the same things as women, except for in the example of what you wear. Uh, So sexism exists in tennis, but as far as Serena's charge that the umpires are treating her unfairly, I thought that this guy completely handled it correctly. So let's listen into the last clip. And uh, this is after the match is over. Naomi Osaka won the match and was ceremoniously booed by this terrible crowd. I just hated the crowd so much. Um... And it really feels like they took this moment away from Naomi Osaka because it's people are blaming the umpire for Serena losing, not for her being outplayed by Osaka, which is also the case. So this is the last clip. This is after the match. Uh, Pam Shriver, I believe, goes and talks to Serena's coach about the accusation. And he uses the old (laughs) Patriots excuse, which is, yeah, I cheated, but... uh, so does everybody. So does Rafa's coach. So does Osaka's coach. So let's, uh, let's listen in.
3: Well, Patrick, I know you certainly didn't intend to uh, insert yourself in the way that it happened. Can you describe the motion that you made that was interpreted by the Chair Empire as coaching?
0: Well, I mean, I'm honest. I was coaching. I mean, I don't think she looked at me, so that's why she didn't even think I was. But I was like 100% of the coaches on 100% of the matches. So we have to stop this uh, hypocr- hypocrite thing. Uh, Sasha was coaching every point, too. It just, I mean, and it's strange because this chair empire was the chair empire of most of the finals of Rafa, and Tony's coaching every single point, and he never gave a warning. So I don't really. Right. Everybody cheats. I think Serena really handled this wrong. Uh, She blamed it on sexism when it really wasn't. And she's kind of hurt her own cause because there is absolutely sexism in tennis. And Serena is one of the greatest players of all time. But unfortunately, you know, this is also what she's going to be remembered for is these these uh, Titanic on court meltdowns, which date back to the US Open years and years and years ago. She was getting outplayed by Osaka she lashed out at the umpire and buried herself deeper, made her situation worse, and ultimately blamed the umpire for her losing. It's an ugly thing for tennis. Uh, I hope it gets resolved before the next one. I hope Serena keeps coming back because she is better than this and I hope this is not her legacy. But uh, on that note, I've given my two cents enough. My I've run my mouth enough. I'm already like 40 minutes in Jesus on this podcast. But uh, I'm back, you guys. I'm going to be doing this as I feel like. So uh, follow follow it on Twitter, Brian at the disco, B-R-I-N-A-T-D-I-S-C-O on Twitter. Or you can follow the SoundCloud. Other than that, I will catch you later. Peace.